0: There's a time to come to your word and humbly submit to it. Lord, we just ask for your spirit to fill us, that we may understand. You know that who can understand the mind of God without the spirit of God? in Amen. And Lord, we need your spirit this afternoon to understand this passage, a passage that causes our culture and our time a great deal of anger. And frustration and has crept into your church, your holy church. Are you designed to live your way, Are you designed marriage to be ordered in a certain fashion. Lord, will we learn from your word and be empowered by your Holy Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in both marriage and parenting and the work life as we look at this over the next weeks lord I ask your spirit to just bring humility as we unpack this passage so in jesus name. Amen. Mm-hmm. In the last little while we've been in ephesians and it's very clear that ephesians one to three and four to six have a bit different take ephesians 1 to three is all about this profound mystery of the gospel that Christ Jesus, the God in human flesh, would leave his throne and dwell among us and take on a human body that is fatiguing and tired and wearing out and he will uh, go to the cross and take the punishment for them. We see that 1 to 3, if we believe 1 to 3, chapters 1 to 3, that is the gospel that Jesus died and rose from the dead to set us free from our sin and to blame us as his own people if we believe that, our life changes. We are born again. We are transformed and uh, chapter 4 starts with, I urge you walk in a manner worthy of your calling. If we are to believe that Jesus is the Lord, our Savior, we are to walk a different manner of life to the world. We are to walk differently to the Gentiles, it says. We are to walk in love. We are to walk in wisdom and last week We are to be spirit-filled, and spirit-filled people submit to one another, verse 21. So to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord means submission. And if we define Christianity in two words, the two words I would use, and I know others would use, is humble servant. A Christian is a humble servant, and we see that demonstrated in Christ. Who walked on this earth and who was equal to the Father, yet did not uh, seek equo- uh, did not s- completely forgotten the passage equality yeah. <laughs> equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied Himself even to the point of death and death on a cross. An incredible and countercultural, or completely counter to this world. So when we come to a passage and the first line of it is wives submit to your husband as to the Lord and then a couple of verses later it says now wives, you should submit to your husband in everything. We suddenly start to feel uneasy. We may go along with our culture and find that this passage is actually quite controversial. Yes, that is not the Christian position. If we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we will read this and actually see the beauty and the depth of how marriage images Christ in the church. And as we unpack this, we will see that God has a, has a perfect design for marriage, yet it wasn't always about marriage, but it was about Christ and the church. Marriage, we will see, is centered upon Christ. So to understand this, we need to do some background work, we really need to dig into Genesis 1-3, to and that's where we're going to start, uh, so I hope we can follow along here as we summarise Genesis 1-3 to as quick as we can, so we can get to this passage. So what we believe about Genesis 1-3 to is it opens with an introduction to God, the author of scripture, the creator and designer, and the one who ordered all things in this world. And I think that's really important, because it centers on an eternal creator, designer, and the one who ordered things. He, he had a plan and a purpose for how things will unravel and how things will work in this world. We see the creation of animals, but then we see an even greater creation, man. Mankind, who will rule over all things in this earth who will subdue them and work the ground and produce fruits and name the animals. We see man is the creation of God. And when I say man, I mean mankind, men and women, is the creation of God that is the pinnacle of his creation. The reason we can say that, as we know, in Genesis 1, 27, it says that they were created, both of them, male and female, were created in the image of God and the likeness of God. Now this has multiple meanings, but to simply put it, it's that we are created with similar characteristics. Don't get me wrong, we don't have all-knowingness or absolute power like God, but we can love and forgive and create. We have characteristics that the animals don't have. It also means that both men and women are created in the likeness of God. Man on his own is not fully created in the likeness of God. God has both masculine characteristics and feminine characteristics. I'm not talking about human bodies. I'm talking what's natural to a man and what's natural to a woman. Men, and I don't want to stereotype, but let's say men are more prone to work or are are more are courageous and strong. We see that physically in the way the male body is built. And women are gentle and kind and nurturing. Both attributes are in God and found within God. God is a gentle, nurturing God. So what we see in God is that He created male and female, both equal. Adam is not the only one made in the image of God, but both Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. Yet what we know about Genesis is the order in which God created things had something to do with marriage. From 1 Timothy 2, we see that uh, that Paul says Adam was formed first and then Eve. God created Adam to lead and provide. God created Adam to, uh, to be the first one to pursue God so that his wife would follow. And he created Eve to be his helper. His helper. And this was God's plan. God created man and woman different so that they would complement one another and serve one another. And what one was lacking, the other would provide. And what the other was lacking, the other one provides. And we see in Genesis 1 and 2 for such a short time that they were naked and unashamed. In other words, they weren't second-guessing each other's motives. Adam, when he sings, when he first sees Eve after God creates her, he sings a love song to her bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She knew that he loved her, and he knew that she loved him, and there was no second guessing. The motives were right, their intentions were pure. But we can't stop that. Because the controversial, the reason this passage that we're preaching today, Ephesians 5, 22-33, is controversial is not because of Genesis 1 and 2, it's because of Genesis 3. And it's because of sin. Pride and sin enter the world and disrupt God's perfect design for marriage. Not only marriage, but we see, of course, all things completely broken or fallen. The Genesis 3 gives us a picture of how Satan destroys or brings chaos into the world. And he does this by causing disruption to the family unit. The society starts to fall apart when we throw out the family unit. Mother, father, children. The society falls apart. And we are seeing the effects of that in our day and age now because it's no longer mother and father and children, but single-parent homes. Or same-sex parent homes and these are against God's perfect design but this all starts with turning away from the uniqueness of both male and female and the different roles that they play this is where it starts when we move away from First of all, a husband being a leader and a wife being a helper, when we move from those, God's good design, in that we were created different to do different things and to image God differently, we start to move away from other areas of marriage into things like homosexuality. So let's look at this sin, Genesis 3. We see Satan come to Eve. This is important. God God created Adam first to be the one who would lead and protect. And Satan disrupts God's plan by not going to Adam, but going to Eve. And he speaks to Eve, and he says to Eve, you can be like God if you just eat this fruit, but God has forbidden her to eat the fruit. Of course, she takes it and gives it to her husband, Adam, and cosmic chaos is created. The dysfunction of family is thrown out the whole of society, the whole of the world. The family unit was attacked, and now the world is in chaos. Sadly, we have seen a teaching that equality means that we should do exactly the same and have the same roles. Equality doesn't necessarily mean that we have to do exactly the same things. We see clearly in the perfect picture of the Trinity, the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit who are all equally God, yet we see submission in them. A beautiful picture of submission that Jesus Christ although with the Father for all eternity submit submit to the Father's will and did nothing without the Father's approval. We live in a time where our culture is built on sin. Our culture is built on sin and we cannot interpret the scriptures through our culture. This word, the Bible, we believe is God-breathed. It is is foundational from 2,000 years plus for the Old Testament ago and today. It's, It's relevant then and it's relevant now and culture hasn't changed it at all. You think about around the world and think about the thousands of years that have gone by and the Thousands of different types of cultures that have gone through. And not once has this word been irrelevant. Not once has this word been changed by that culture. Because we, as Christians, whether we are from an American background, an Australian background, a Chinese background, or wherever we're from, have a kingdom culture. A culture that is shaped by Jesus and what he has done for us a culture that is shaped by God and how he created us. The consequence of sin has meant that pride has crept into our heart and we see from this sin of Adam and Eve a curse upon the world. And in Genesis 3, we see God curse Satan, the serpent, and man, Adam, and Eve, woman. And in Genesis 3, we'll see right here why this is so controversial. What is it in the human heart that makes us kick up against submission? Genesis 3.16, it tells us, Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. So this is the consequence of sin or the curse upon women and, and men and marriage because of the because of their sin, and it says, "Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you." If you've got an ESV translation, it actually helps us understand this a bit better because it says, "Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you." Now we need to do a bit of work on wording here because not always does a Hebrew word translate well into an English word. I want to point out this word, desire. Desire here is also used in Genesis 4-7 when Cain is warned about sin. And God says to him, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. That word desire is used both for Cain and for the woman here in this passage and it actually means to dominate, to master, to rule or to conquer. Which is why the ESV adds in this word, Contrary, Your desire will be contrary to your husband. In other words, it's going to be conflicting. The curse of sin is that we're going to be built up with pride and we're going to rule over or push against one another and try and dominate each other. It goes against the very nature in which God created us, to be humble servants. The other word we need to point out is rule, but he shall rule over you. Speaking about the husband will rule over you This is not a good rule, this is not headship, which we're going to talk about. This is the rule, the same word is used, speaking of Pharaoh's rule over Egypt. It's a controlling, selfish, prideful rule and and what we're seeing here from this passage or this curse upon the marriage system, upon man and woman here, is that there is going to be conflict in marriage and all of us who are married know that there's conflict in marriage. right? That's, that's just what happens. It's when two sinful people with opposing views and selfish pride come together and start clashing. And Jesus, when he comes, he brings us to a place of humble servanthood and reinstates and reminds us of the roles in which God created us for. That men would lead, and women would be their helper. A woman's, the women, uh, women have a sinful inclination to upspur up man's authority and men have a sinful inclination to put women under their feet. Let's be clear from the outset that leadership or headship is not domineering or oppressive as we've seen throughout history. As we look at this, as we unpack this passage, it's important for us to have this foundation of Genesis 1, 2 and 3. To know that God had a perfect plan, perfect design, perfect love. That men would be uh, head of their wife and wife would be their helper. And it is a beautiful thing of different roles. A beautiful union of different roles coming together to reflect God's glory. And if we throw this passage out, misteach it or forget about it, as many churches are doing, because they don't want to offend the culture of the time, we are missing a major picture of Christ's love for his church. If we throw out headship and submission and say, it doesn't matter, anyone can lead, you can do whatever you want, you don't understand the gospel. Because right now, as we unpack this, this is about the gospel. Look at verse 32, just to have this in the back of your mind. This mystery, sorry Ephesians 5 verse 32, not in Genesis. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What we need to understand is this whole section here as we look at wives' submission and male headship is not about us, but it's about Christ and His church. It's about understanding how Christ leads his church and the church submits to Christ. And it's about how in marriage we reflect God's glory. Remember, male and female are created in the image of God. And if we're created in the image of God, we're reflecting his glory to the world. And if our marriage is dysfunctional and men aren't men and women aren't women and they're crossing boundaries and crossing genders, we aren't reflecting nothing to the world without reflecting the true gospel to the world. So yes, this is countercultural, but it is faithful to the scriptures. Let's get into this passage. Sorry for the long intro. Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, So also wives should submit in everything to their husband. What we need to keep in mind is as we go through this passage, but as you read the Bible and we see times taught on marriage, we're going to weave back and forth between an earthly marriage between a man and a woman and this deeply spiritual mystery of marriage between Christ and his church. This is what we see we see it here just in these few verses it speaks about an earthly marriage wives submit to your husband and then straight the very next verse is a command to husbands but a parallel image of christ is head of the church weaving back and forth all the way through this passage is earthly marriage and heavenly mystery the marriage of christ and His bride this passage is deeply gospel it's deeply practical and it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. Submit, or in other translations, depending on what you're reading, says, be subject to your husband. Originally is a military term, and it means to arrange under or rank under. What we said before is that a spirit filled Christian is a humble servant. We see in verse 21 submit to one another. We are all meant to submit to one another, and if we remember Jesus walking on earth and his disciples rise up and have this argument argument about who's the greatest, what does Jesus say to him? Be a servant and slave to the least of these. They're crazy words in our day and age. Servant and slave to the least of these. So what we understand is that it is a Christian virtue and a Christian action. Living a life worthy of this calling is a matter of being a humble servant to, to one another. But this does play out specifically in marriage, family and the workplace, as we'll see over the next few weeks. This week, focusing in on marriage and God's perfect design, as we have looked at just from Genesis 1, is that man will lead his wife and wives will submit to their husband. As we've said, submit is a word that we don't really like in our day and age and find it offensive. But if we really unpack this and really look deeply, submission is a freeing, thriving position to be in if we know who we're submitting to. If we submit to Christ, as Christians, when we submit to Christ as our Lord, Savior, God, King, it is a freeing, thriving position to be in. It is not a dictatorship, painful, but it's free. Because we willfully and willingly lay down our life to Jesus and follow Him. And this is the image we're getting of the wife submitting to her husband. If we look at the word love a few weeks ago, walk in love, or walk like Christ did and, 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 and love, that love is not a move of emotion. It's not love at first sight. It's not that sort of feeling where you, you get butterflies in your stomach. No, this is a decision-making love, a sacrificial love. It's a matter of the will. I choose to love. The same is true here about submission. It's not a dictated, it's not a forced submission, it's not an oppressive submission, but rather a choosing a, a, a choosing and a willingness To follow or be the helper of their husband. It also says here, as to the Lord. Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This is really important. If we are to submit as wives, not we, because I'm not a wife, but if wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, they're not submitting. When they submit to their husbands, they're doing it for Christ. This is to reflect Christ. When we look back at Genesis 1, you're created in the image of God and likeness of God. Well, if you're created in the image and likeness of Christ, God, you're doing this to reflect Jesus. Jesus so perfectly demonstrated what it looked like to submit. So as we see wives submit to their husbands, they're not submitting to just their husbands, they're submitting to the Lord in their submission to their husband. They're demonstrating the characteristic and attributes of Christ in their submission. Verse 23, 4, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. The forehead reminds us of the plan and purpose of marriage that God instated. Let's remember what God has done. Paul is throwing them back again to Genesis 1 and 2. Remember how God created marriage. Remember when it was perfect, when sin wasn't in the world, when there was no pride, when they were naked and unashamed, when they weren't second-guessing each other's motives. To bear image... As Christ is the head of the church, he's reminding us of the image that we were created in. Reminding us that we were not created to reflect our own image or to portray our own feelings or to push our own agenda, but rather to bear the image of Christ in his church. All the way back in Genesis, we see it in Ephesians 1, that before the foundations of the earth, God chose his people. All the way back in Genesis, the intention of marriage was to demonstrate and reflect Christ in his church. The same is true today. If we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, walk in a manner worthy of the faith that we have been given by Christ, we have submission in our marriages and headship in our marriages. Just as the church does, through Christ and his church in that relationship. So the encouragement to the wife here is to submit to your husband for that that is how God designed you. You know, if we use things for what they're not designed for, it breaks. You take a two-wheel drive car off-road, after a while it breaks. It may not break the first time, but after a while it breaks because it's not made to go off-road. When we use things in an incorrect way, they break, and, and this is... Obviously, the same here. God has told us this is what you're created for. This is how you were created. If you function in the way you were created, you will, you will, you will one reflect God's glory to the world. That you will thrive in a fallen and broken world. The reason there's so many unhappy, dysfunctional marriages is because, firstly, they don't have Christ in them. And secondly, they're not working in the role that God created them to walk in. So the emphasis in this letter for wives is to walk, walk as Christ walked, in full submission to the Father, reflecting Him by being in full submission to your husband. But now we reflect on what type of husband it is that you would be in submission to. He states right here, husbands love your wives. So we know from the back that the first, the husband that you are in submission to, the husband that you would follow and, and be led by, is one that loves you and cares for you. But then Paul sort of takes a detour and goes straight into the gospel. says, weaving back and forth between, Christ, uh, between the earthly marriage between a husband and wife and also between Christ and his church and the comparison there. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he goes into the gospel. Christ loved the church and gave himself up, died on the cross, defeated sin and death, so that what? He could claim her and cleanse her from sin and bring her into complete perfection. The church, the people of God, without spot, wrinkle or any such thing, holy, without blemish, first thing we see is that the husband in which a wife is submitting to is not a dictator but one who has their best interests at heart. It is one who is meditating and dwelling on Christ. A husband that loves his wife has to be one who sits and meditates on what it means for Christ to love the church and give himself up her to meditate on what it means for Christ to sanctify, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the work, and what it means to present her without spot or wrinkle, holy, without blemish. The husband that the wife is submitting to is not an apathetic Sunday Christian who sometimes reads their Bible and watches a Christian movie occasionally. It is the Christian husband who daily, moment by moment, lives dependent on the will of God's spirit in their life. It's deeply, deeply gospel. Marriage is gospel. Marriage is not a human institution. We've pretty much thrown it out in the world, but marriage is God's plan, God's design, and it is a gospel-focused picture. Within a marriage, we have a man and a woman, and within the gospel, we have Christ and his bride, which he calls the church. The church is not a building, it is the people, it is those he came to pursue and save through the death on his cross and the resurrection, it is those he came to sanctify through his word. And we see through Christ, as we look at this image and these few verses that he gave his life up, he uses his word, his spirit to sanctify his bride. That is to make us holy, to change our actions, our motives, our desires away from the world and to him. And will he will present us, present us to himself. And we see that in Revelation 21. When we are clothed in white. Clothed in white and enter into the marriage feast. That's what heaven initially looks like. The bride of Christ, the people from every tribe, nation and tongue singing praise. Clothed in white, which means we're spotless, without blemish, no sin left. And we are presented to Christ like a bride is on a wedding day. Can we just comprehend that for a moment and we have this grand feast, this wedding banquet with no sin, no error we are just a metaphor here, naked and unashamed metaphor, I'm not saying we will be naked we're clothed in white, it says but we are unashamed, we're not second guessing people's motives this is the picture of the husband that this wife is submitting to. That is a, a husband you could submit to because you know their intentions are right. The cleansing, the washing of water with the word gives us this image of the weddings that they used to have in, in Greece, uh, early Greece, and the Jewish culture, where it's similar to today, but it's ceremonial cleaning, first of all. Where they would go and bathe, the bride would go and bathe and wash themselves and, and they would be cleansed of all impurities, so to speak, as a ceremony. And then they would uh, dress themselves in beautiful attire, as we do today, often in white. To have that image of purity, spotlessness. See, when Christ died on the cross, He said, "'It is finished.'" In other words, he made a claim over his people. He didn't make it possible for his people. He made a claim over his people. They will be saved. He will bring them in. And the promise is that he will sanctify them. It says here, with the word. With the word of God. This is not just a book. It's not a way. It's the way, the truth, the life. It's the only possible way. Through this word, we are cleansed. And the man who loves his wife knows this word in order to cleanse his wife. His job in loving his wife is to lead her to Jesus first and foremost. To lead her to Jesus. To point her to the one who gave his life for her. To point her to the one who sanctifies her. To point her to the one who is bringing her and the rest of the church into glory. "...without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, holy, presentable to the Lord." Can we see that this passage is not about individuals, it's not really about husbands or wives, it's about Christ. Your marriage, if you are married, is not about you, it's about Christ, and bringing glory to Christ. That is why marriage was invented, it's why God designed marriage. So that you would reflect, through your relationship, Christ. So if we look at this, we see that Christ is the chief bridegroom and the last husband. He's the chief bridegroom, the one we desire and long for. As a collective, as his bride, we desire and long for the chief bridegroom and he's the last husband in that we will be with him for all eternity. As a faithful made spotless people. Jesus is the all-sufficient bridegroom. He's the all-sufficient bridegroom in the one we long for to come back. He loves sacrificially. He cleanses us through His Word. He keeps us till the day we go to be with Him. You may sit wanting this evening. You may be wanting in your life. Maybe you're single and you're desperately wanting a relationship or to be married. Maybe you are a husband who desperately wants a wife that respects you. Maybe you're a wife who desperately wants a husband to lead you. Maybe you're wanting but let your want not be misplaced. Because firstly, above all, it has to be in Christ for its idolatry. Marriage is a a beautiful gift from God as we clearly see But if we're aiming for marriage in life, we'll be sadly disappointed and it's idolatry to want that above Christ. If you want a a wife that respects you more than Christ, or if you want a husband that leads you more than Christ, your trust is misplaced. Christ alone is the sufficient bridegroom. Our first love must be in Christ. So that then we can walk in a manner, so that then husbands can love their wives as Christ has loved the church, and wives can submit to their husbands just as the church submits to Christ. We can't do this without Christ. This is a Spirit-filled position if we read back in... Uh, verse 18 be filled with the spirit and then he lists new worship thanksgiving and submission these are acts, attributes of a spirit filled life these are uh, characteristics of a new life in Christ so when we look at this and go wow that angers me or that frustrates me or that is too hard for me? Yeah, you're right. It goes against every part of our nature, our old nature, which God, Jesus has dealt with, thrown out and put on the new self as we looked in chapter four. The old self is gone. The new self has come. And now through the strength of the spirit and the meditation on the gospel, we can live this out as we admit our weaknesses and our failings, as we come to God and say, God, I'm failing as a husband, I'm struggling as a wife, I'm struggling in singleness, God, help me, where, where can I get strength from? Your strength comes from the Lord, which is through His Word. Husbands, love your wives, and then Paul preaches the Gospel as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. So husbands, if we are to love our wives, and wives, if we are to submit to our husbands, your first place to look to is not to one another, but to Christ. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands, husbands, we're going back to the earthly marriage. He's gone on his detour to the gospel, or not detour, but rather a reflection on how the gospel is about uh, re- the gospel is reflected in marriage. Verse twenty-eight. In the same way, husbands should love their li- wives, just as we've been talking about. In the same way as the gospel is presented, how Christ gives up His life for the church and sanctifies her. That is how we are to men love their wives. And then he goes on a bit further and says, as Your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Once again, he's reflecting on Christ and the church, and he's saying, Hey, we're the body of Christ. We have been. Christ is the head, we see it in 1 Corinthians 12, and we are different limbs, differently gifted, we are used differently in the world and in the church in order to serve one another. And and we see so much how Christ has nourished and cared for us, he cherishes us. Doesn't that word just make you sing that God, Christ, Jesus, the one who created all things, cherishes us? He says, husbands, this is how you ought to act. Wives are part of your own flesh. Just as you protect your own flesh, it's a human instinct to protect our own flesh. So also husbands should protect their wives as well. Love their wives as their own body. Cherish them. You see, when their husband's worth is in Christ, when a husband's worth, his value, is in Christ, when he sees Christ as his absolute everything, he will truly then see his wife as his own flesh. He will see the need to care and nourish her as Christ has done for the church. Through laying aside his life and cleansing her through the washing of the Word, through laying aside his his life and discipling her, teaching her, helping her, nurturing her. We need to be clear that nourish and cherish does not mean that it's just the male's way and his agenda. It doesn't mean that Everyone just follow, or everything goes in the marriage in order to make the husband happy. That is not what it means. But at the same respect, it doesn't mean that the husband just bows down to the wife and does everything she wants. It's about them and the husband leading this and getting them on God's agenda, on a kingdom agenda. To nourish and cherish your wife is to help you both get on the agenda of Christ. To help you both walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. To help you both walk in humility. To help you both walk in love. To help you both not walk like the Gentiles do. As Paul has been saying. It is the husband's responsibility and he will give an account to God for how he has led his own life, but also his wife. And how her faith and how her walk has gone. So what we see in many Christian husbands today is one of two things, a husband running off into the work world, working hard, providing for the family's needs, building up all the comforts they can possibly have and saying they're a good husband. Or the other one is a husband that runs off to the mission field or to ministry, leaves their wife behind and throws themselves into the kingdom work and no longer is present. It doesn't matter if it's kingdom work or earthly work. It doesn't matter if you've provided every physical need of your wife, but if you have not provided for her spiritually, you haven't loved her as Christ has loved the church. Christ's main concern for the church is their spiritual destination. A husband's main concern for his wife is her spiritual destination, her spiritual health. And in order to do that, his spiritual health must be in check as well. Paul refers to Genesis again by saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One of the biggest problems we can see in marriages today is that men or women don't let go of their families. They want to still stay heavily under the influence and authority, maybe this means money contributing to their life, or it's just a very tight connection in that they always seek advice from their parents. It's not wrong to get advice. I'm not saying don't ever go and ask your parents anything, that's fine but don't let them be the ultimate authority and and take responsibility in your life. A man leaves his father and mother and starts a new family. The two of them become one flesh. He now treats her higher than he treats his father and mother. They become one flesh. This word hold fast is uh, um, often translated cleave, and to cleave means to glue or cement together. You're stuck together. One of the great sins of men today is that they stay boys for far too long. Not only do they become dictators or use their power to be abusive, but rather than that, they just neglect responsibility altogether. And our society has a problem with it by calling Uh, Our society often contributes to it by using phrases such as young adults, a fairly new phrase, a phrase that wasn't used back in the 50s, maybe even earlier, but it's an excuse for growing up, it's an excuse for young men to continue in their boyish behaviour, to stay at home till they're late into their 30s, to take no responsibility. There once was a time when you were a child and then you were an adult, or you were a boy and then you were a man. Our society makes it very unclear as to when men are men and no longer boys. But at some point, a boy needs to take responsibility. So there's two sins we see in the world. The man either becomes a dictator and abusive to women, or they sit back and become lazy and irresponsible and have no responsibility. It starts, as a Christian, by taking responsibility of your faith at some point you need to own your faith for yourself no longer be reminded to read the bible and to seek the Lord to know what it means to preach the gospel to yourself so that you can then preach it to your wife so what we see wives when they submit to their husband as to the Lord they're not submitting to a child or a dictator, but rather, than some, but rather to someone who has immersed their mind in Christ and who has their best interests at heart. That's 32 and 33 really sums this up. And he says, We looked at that first 32 at the start. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul sums this all up and says this mystery about husbands and wives is, uh, is profound. And I'm speaking about Christ and the church. When we look at this, what he's saying is that marriage is designed to reflect God. That is, what reflects Christ's love for his people, for his church. That is what we've been summarizing here. So when the Christian culture starts to blend with the worldly culture and we say, oh, we're, we're all equal, that means we just all do exactly the same thing and men can be women and women can be men and it doesn't really matter, our gender doesn't have any uh, value anymore, we are no longer glorifying Jesus. We are no longer reflecting and demonstrating the gospel to the world through our marriages. We are no longer the image bearers of Christ. We're no longer that. And sadly, so many churches are preaching what the world is preaching and we need to stand upon the Word and stand upon Genesis 1 and 2 and say, God designed this so that we can thrive. Not that we would be oppressed. Not that we would be living hopelessly sad lives, but rather that we would thrive. And when we live this new life that Christ has given us power to, Christ has given us the strength to love as He has loved the church and to submit as the church submits to Christ. We will thrive in a fallen world,'ll we'll be sanctified, brought into glory. And we will come to understand a profound, deeply beautiful mystery of the love that Christ has Christ has for the church. then Spurgeon, a great pastor in long like time ago, 1800 or something, said, "I can comprehend God's mercy. I can comprehend God's mercy. A great and magnificent God who shows mercy. I can understand His forgiveness." But that he loves me, that's a mystery. That the creator of the whole world loves me, that is a profound mystery. And it's a mystery we want reflected in our marriages. A mystery that when people look at Christian marriage, when Huntley and Greta and Braxton look at your marriages, or the way you deal with waiting for marriage, or the way you deal with singleness, however that is, that they would say that is a profound mystery that's countercultural. that's weird they're weird how do they how do they live like that and of course the answer is christ and we can speak along with paul the gospel that he says in verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up, we can remind them, tell them of how Jesus died for them in their place, how he will sanctify them, how he will bring them into glory with him. The wedding feast. The wedding feast where we're clothed in white and no longer, no longer is there sin. No longer are we questioning one another's motives that all will be made as it ought to death. God's people are with God, God's people dwelling with God. Let's pray. Father God, I am grieved by the world, I'm grieved how I contribute at times to a display that does not reflect the gospel. I'm grieved by the world in that it is so turned from you and continues to turn from you by destroying the family unit. We have all together thrown out what it means to be family. Lord, Your good design. If we would just be humble, humble children that come to you and see that, Lord, you are not a God who wants the worst for us. You don't want the worst for wives or for husbands or for people who are single. But, Lord, you want the best. You want us to know you to understand your love. One of the ways you have given us to understand your love is the way a marriage works. Lord, we acknowledge that that because we are from this world and our nature was sin, we can't live we can't live in a marriage that is like this without you, without being. Filled with the Spirit, we will always have contrary desires, dictating or irresponsible or overthrowing one another. Lord, I just pray that by your Spirit you will strengthen us. Your glory, the mystery of the gospel, that Jesus Christ gave up his life for his bride, the church. Be seen in the way husbands love their wives and wives respect their husbands. Bring glory to your name through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.